Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that makes us Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. I've been working on my Africana accent. Was that it? <laughs> sort of. I've also been told by some people, Chuck, we love your accents because they're kind of bad, but they're funny. And other people said, my God, please don't ever do accents again. Oh, you got to keep doing accents. Of course. Uh, people can't tell me what to do. <laughs> I think your Afrikaner um, is a little rough around yeah. the edges, <laughs> especially compared to your Italian. Well, sure. That's easy, though. But um, That's a no problem. So do you want to say a word in Afrikaner? I think I know that you know one. Apartheid? Yes. <laughs> and it means apartness in Afrikaner. In, yeah, in Afrikaans. Yes. Sure. Which is the language. Yeah. Well, where did I get Afrikaner? Uh, that is the person is an Afrikaner. Okay, gotcha. And they you. speak Afrikaans. So in Afrikaans, mm-hmm. uh, apartheid means apartness. And yeah. you capitalize it. And the reason you capitalize it is because for uh, about 50 years, a little less than 50 years, it was a national policy in South Africa. And it was brutal. Yeah. And awful. And the whole world said, you know what, South Africa? We judge you. And uh, for good reason. Yeah. I remember being a kid, and we'll get to this later, but the artist against apartheid was the first time I ever heard that word. Yeah. As a, a young teenager, Bono telling me, don't play Sun City. Sun City was built in 81. Okay. Sun City, first of all, is a resort in South Africa. And, you know... Little Stephen Van Zant of the Sopranos yeah. and the E Street Band sure. wrote this song called I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City. Got all these people to sing on it, sort of in I mean, the We Are the World era. It was yeah. like U2 to Curtis Blow yeah. to um, Africa Boombada to uh, Peter Gabriel. I did like so many people were on that song. All of these. Miles Davis was on there. Yeah. Like everybody was Bruce, on there. It was a good song. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was a goodish song. <laughs> it was okay. But it was like I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City. And not only was it a song, but it was like a, uh, a um, movement a, and an, a, an agreement, like a, a creed that you're kind of signing. Yeah. So who played? I saw that Elton John and Queen and Linda Ronstadt played during apartheid. Sinatra but... played. I mean, yeah, they knew ahead of time that there was like a, you know, Sun City was not a good place to be. Huh. And it was in apartheid. It was a good place to be if you were in a pro-apartheid South African with a lot of money because it was a very nice resort. Yeah, and you want to gamble. And they would get big name acts. But um, if you went there and played there and made money there, even if you didn't make money there, actually, um, the U.N. had an anti-apartheid unit. And they kept track of who was playing there. And they would publish a blacklist. Huh. And there was a huge, huge um, backlash against it. Most people were just like, sorry, sorry. If you said it publicly, I'm, I'm very sorry that I went and played Sun City. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go to apartheid South Africa again. Um, as a performer, they would take you off the list. Oh, okay. But it was still like the, it's really smacked of McCarthyism because they used a blacklist for su- suspected communists in, yeah. the, in the entertainment industry. And this is the same thing. Yeah, but in this case. The, it was... In this case, they were on the side of right. The blacklisters <laughs> were. But, but yeah, so um, if you went to Sun City, you ended up on this list. And actually, really interestingly, Tim Reed, Venus Flytrap, uh-huh. he went down to South Africa with Howard Hessman. Johnny Fever. Of WKRP in Cincinnati. Because WKRP in Cincinnati was a really huge hit down there. Really? Yeah. So they had Venus and uh, and Johnny Fever come down, and Tim Reed was 
one of the first African Americans uh, invited to apartheid South Africa to not perform. Like this was just a publicity tour, right? And he spent the whole time uh, speaking out against apartheid. Good. And he still ended up on the UN's blacklist. Really? Because he received like a per diem or something during his his huh. publicity tour there, and he uh, he spoke out. There's a Chicago Tribune article from the time, from like 1986, that interviews him, and he is a really smart guy speaking out against this blacklist or at the very least like how um clumsy it was that it, yeah. they weren't using a scalpel at all they were just like oh you went to south africa and they gave you some money and now you're blacklisted right he's like i was speaking out against apartheid like you get what are you doing so let's talk let's talk apartheid let's where did this come from chuck i mean it's it was instituted in 1948 but it was way older than that yeah racial suppression was going on sort of from the 17th century on right. in Africa, right. or at least in Southern Africa. And it wasn't South Africa at the time, we should point out. We'll get to that, though. Yeah. Um, but the Dutch uh, came there in the 17th century just as a little stop-off station they wanted to set up on the spice route. Yeah. Dutch East India Company, they were like, we need a place to kick back a little bit and rest on this trip. Right. And so I was about to say, they said, do you mind? They, I don't think they asked. No, they did not. They just sort of set up shop there, and they were not there to colonize um, initially. No, that was just to set up a way station. Yep, just to set up a station. And, um, but the, uh, because they were Europeans, they did bring, um, along with them the thought that white people are supreme to black people. Right. And to prove it, they the world brought along over. black slaves with them. That's right. Um, so that notion is immediately set up like, hey, we're better than you. Right. You can't tell us what to do. We have guns and, uh, we're more quote unquote advanced if, if, you follow along those European lines of what advanced is. Right. And because they were Europeans during the age of exploration, they said, let's colonize anyway. Let's do it. <laughs> That's true. So they did. Um, and they started setting up settlements that weren't united, but were basically the Dutch. And then later on, the British, and to a much lesser extent, the French, um, basically saying just uh, undergoing a land grab that involved basically taking land from the indigenous people there. And then setting up farms. Sounds like another country. Yeah, it sounds really familiar, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, they basically would try and negotiate for land, and if that broke down, they were like, all right, we're taking it. Right, and then they would take the land, turn it in, turn the land into plantations, start growing stuff for export, and then the people would say, um, we're starving out here. And the Dutch people would say, well, come on in and work for us for like next to nothing. At the very least, you'll live long enough to till our fields. Yeah. And that's how the whole thing began. Yeah, basically, they would end up tilling the fields that they at one point owned themselves or used themselves right. as slaves. Right. And uh, this was the Dutch at first uh, until about the mid-1700s. Then uh, British activity picked up in the region. And um, they, uh, you know, at the time it was, I think you said, just like various separate societies, farming, living agrarian lifestyle, ranching, hunter-gathering. Right. And then the the Dutch and then the Brits came down there and, with their own slaves and took the land and said, you know what, we're going to battle with each other over this area. And eventually Britain gained control in the early 19th century from the Dutch even, but the Dutch were still there sort of running things. Is that right. how it worked? Yeah, there were way more Dutch settlers than British, but the British had managed to gain control of it. And now it was a British colony. And they said, but slavery is not legal. 
No, but you can be uh, a ser- you you are a servant, basically, yeah. and we're going to codify this. And now, for the first time in this area, um, blacks were legally subservient to whites. Yeah. So instead of master slave, it was master servant. Big, right. Big diff. And even though the British, it was a British colony, it was still basically run and operated by the Dutch. That's right. Um, and some Dutch didn't like that, so they pressed further and further inward, and um, ultimately. Uh, creating more and more of an area for the future South Africa by dominating these tribes with guns, yeah. germs, steel, you know, that whole thing. Yep. Um, and then around about 1860, something really big happened, a little bit into the interior. They discovered diamonds and gold, and yeah. they said, oh, we're staying. Yeah, and they said, you know, we know you love farming and all that good stuff, but we think you'd be much happier working in a mine for next to nothing. At the very least, it would make us happier. If you were working in our minds. That's right. And you know what? We're going to um, brutalize you. We're going to segregate you. Uh, we're going to give you the most dangerous jobs. Yeah. And humiliate you and do cavity searches. And you know what? Now you have to have a passbook to go to your job as a miner. And uh, you're going to be paid a lot less. And the passbooks, the reason we mentioned that is it soon became a staple that you couldn't go Anywhere you weren't supposed to go without a passbook. Right. It was uh, initially the, started as a work thing, though. In the in the mines of South Africa, that's where apartheid was born, and a lot of the apartheid techniques, like like you say, passbooks, um, and just the general degradation of yeah. blacks in South Africa area. Um, it all began. I mean, it, it was already in place, but just the brutality of it, I, I take it, really picked up in the mines. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that was what the 1860s. Yeah, and that was pretty much the way it was. Um, the, it was a British colony in South Africa. It was it wasn't South Africa yet, but it was a British colony. The Dutch were ruling it. The blacks um, there, the African, the indige- indigenous natives, um, were uh, on the losing end of all of this in a very brutal fashion. And then in the early 1900s, and I think 1908. Um, the people who were running this British colony, the Dutch, said, hey, man, we want a little more authority here. Yeah, and they were, at this point, they were Afrikaner. Like, right. in the past century, they had changed a lot. They had this weird hybrid language that developed, and they were not, they were Dutch in heritage, but they were right. starting to become a new people in Southern Africa, they, which is Afrikaner. They probably felt about as Dutch as, like, you and I feel British. Right. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, so yeah, they were like a whole new a whole new group. But the basis of this was that they were a whole new group who had grown up in charge of another group. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure that they had a free hand in dealing with these other subclasses. Um and also I want to say like any time you hear me say subclasses, I'm making air quotes, everybody. Yeah, and when I say big difference between master slave and master servant, I was being sarcastic. Right. We're we're anti apartheid. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Um so the the uh these Afrikaners running the show sent a, a new constitution to Britain and Britain said, Okay, go ahead. Um we're we're gonna go ahead and grant this. It's going to be called the South Africa Act of nineteen ten and with that British decreed that the state of South Africa was born. That's still right. British colony. Mm-hmm. But it was officially under Afrikaner control. That's right. And uh oh yeah, one other thing. Black people can't hold office ever. Yeah, that's like the first of what would be many, many, many restrictions. And that's a huge one because all of a sudden 
You have an yeah, all-white have government no made up of white people who feel that this is their white man's burden to keep you from being shiftless and lazy and thieving yeah. and just killing yourselves and cutting off your own hands and killing one another. It's up to the white man right. to make sure you don't do that. And we're going to keep you, keep you safe by subjugating you. And the first way we're going to do that is to just have an all-white government. That's right. And uh, and the second thing we're going to do is we're going to take your land because n- even though we only make up 20% of the population as white people, yeah. we need 93% of the land. So we're going to shuffle seven, uh, I'm sorry, 80% of the people uh, onto 7% of the land, really yeah. crappy land. Really bad land with Wasn't really bad front. housing. And um, that was under the leadership of General uh, Louis or Luis or Louis Botha, mm-hmm. first prime minister of South Africa. And the Native Lands Act of 1913 basically was when they said, you know what, we're going to move all these communities. If we kill you along the way or you die, no big deal. If your whole life is disrupted, no big deal. And we're essentially going to shove you onto these tiny parcels of crappy land. Yeah. So that began what's called the segregation period. Right. You can't go here. This is white land. Right. Um, and after, during the segregation period between the like 1913 Lands Act and the 50s, or 1948, um, a bunch of other things happened for the um, the uh, blacks who were who came to be called Bantus, indigenous Africans. Um, they lost the right to vote in the 30s. Yep. In the 20s, they had lost the right to unionize. Yeah. And basically, they were just being pushed further and further out of a meaningful participation in society. Yeah, they they, they uh, tried to hamper their access to education even yeah. early on and fired them from jobs, even if they were totally more skilled than a white worker. Yeah, if you were a skilled craftsman and you had apprenticed, you couldn't you couldn't carry out your craft any longer. No. But legally, they could go in and be like, you know what? There's a white guy who we think is better for this job, so you're fired. Yeah, because that was the government. Right. Um, and this was even before the Afrikaner Nationalist Party. This is before apartheid, officially. Yeah, that didn't come around until 1948. 1948, when, again, with an all-white government that had been in power for 35 years, this extreme right-wing, fr- basically a fringe movement, the Afrikaner Nationalist Movement. Yeah came to power, and they officially instituted what we call apartheid, their apartheid policies, starting in 1948, but really kicking off in 1950 with the what the Population Registration Act, right? Yeah, and this was under uh, Prime Minister D.F. Uh, Malin at the time. And with the Population Registration Act is when they created officially the Bantu, like you said, and named the indigenous black population. Uh, there's, so there's Bantu, there's white, and then there's colored, which is mixed race, mm-hmm. and you have to register yourself and be legally classified as one of these three races. Everyone was. Everybody. If you're white, good news for you. Yeah, because you got 93% of the land. Yeah. If you're Bantu or uh, mixed race, then bad luck for you. Right. And then um, at first, Indians were left out. And uh, Indians, I guess because it was a British colony. Yeah. Uh, since India was also a British colony, uh, South Africa was kind of a place to be for for Indians, including Gandhi, who was yeah. one of the early protesters of this segregationist idea um, and was imprisoned for, I think, 20 years in South Africa. 
Yeah, he was. Or he was in prison while he was there for 20 years. He spent part of it in prison for protesting right. segregation. Peacefully, uh, of course. But then, uh, so uh, ultimately, Indians were excluded as foreigners, but then just to keep problems from happening or to keep the bureaucracy going, right? they were added as a fourth race. That's right. Um, you could not get married between races. If you were uh, Bantu and loved with someone of mixed race, you couldn't even marry them. Very restrictive. And then uh, next came another act uh, called the Group Areas Act, and this really escalated the segregation um, because now you needed passbooks, essentially passports, to go from one area to another, some you weren't even allowed in, and um, that even went further in the Bantu Homelands, uh, Homelands Act of 1951, which basically said, you know what, wherever your your area is in South Africa... That is now your homeland, and you're not even South African anymore. Yeah, if you're if you're Bantu, you live in this area. If you're a Bantu married to a colored person, the the your colored spouse lives in a different area. Yeah, your family's just ripped apart now. Well, they took away basically. They said you're not even South African. Right. You're, and we're allowing you to stay here basically if you stay in this one area that your passbook says that you can stay in. Right, because you can't stay here because you're not a lo- you're no longer a member of this country. Unbelievable, like. I drew exclamation points next to that one <laughs> just because, like, they literally moved in, took over these people, and then said, you're not even a part of this country right. that we've established. So they have – they've been pushed out of participation in society. The um, Anybody who is not white um, is now forced onto a reservation. Yeah, essentially. Um, and then they – really kind of started indoctrinating the next generation with the um, Bantu Education Act of 1953. Yeah. And basically, if you were Bantu, you would be put into a school where the student-teacher ratio was about 56 to 1 on average. You went to school three hours a day. Yeah. Um, They did it in two shifts. A a teacher would see two different classes, um, three hours for one, three hours for another. And you would be taught basically how, um, like, the history of your people was that you were you were um, kind of dumb and mm-hmm. meandering, and you hadn't really done anything with the land before, and um, how you were reliant on the white people who came to rescue you and your people. Yeah, um, you were taught how you could li- work in a factory, and that's about as good as it got for you. Yeah, um, and basically they were taught to be servile and better servants to the the white um, Afrikaners. Yeah, well, that was the plan, at least. Yeah. Uh, but it backfired because in the 1950s and 60s, instead of becoming more docile, mm-hmm. they rallied and became uh, more upset uh, and basically raged against the machine in the 1950s and 60s at the same time that the uh, U.S. civil rights movement was going on. The same thing was kind of starting to happen in South Africa, and yeah. it was the beginning of what would be a, you know... 30-year end of apartheid. Yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, People got mad. Yeah, and rightly so. Yeah, and this wasn't just uh, uh, indigenous people. There were also white liberals at the time, just like here in the U.S., that were very much against apartheid and also, you know, suppressed when they tried to, like, you know, raise awareness. Right. Or fight back. Right, because one of the things about um, the apartheid government, it wasn't just racial segregation. Um, they were, like I said, extremely right wing and they were very much into isolationism. Yeah. They kept uh, a very tight 
control over what their their population, white or non-white, mm-hmm. um, had access to as far as the news went. Oh, yeah. Music? It's, music. Have you seen Searching for Sugar Man? Yeah. It's a good one. Um and it was you saw what they did with like there was a, a record on there was a song on his record Rodriguez yeah and um, they scratched the song the vinyl so yeah. it couldn't be played they did stuff like that um, yeah you guys should see that very... it just won the Academy Award yeah and uh, we don't want to spoil anything though because it unfolds in a really great mysterious way it's but a good it's a good documentary it's a great documentary and that's what inspired this decision to do this actually right um, so the the government was. Fairly close to totalitarian. Like, if you dissented against the government, white, black, otherwise, yep. you would go to jail. Um, but despite this, and despite the brutality that the police were engaged in, like, um, there was a, for example, there was a strike in 1946. 75,000 unarmed black miners went on strike. A peaceful protest. Yeah. A thousand people were killed by the police. Yeah, they would just open fire on crowds. Yeah, so this even, is... Like peaceful crowds, even. Right. And this is one of the reasons why um, I think people were so so resistant to being indoctrinated into apartheid mentality, um, because of the, in part because of the brutality of the police tactics, too. Yeah. But, so let's talk about this. Um, in the 60s, uh, like you were saying, when the U.S. civil rights movement was, was really starting to brew and, and take shape... Um, Nelson Mandela emerged as a member of the African National Congress. Yeah. Huge organization. And then there was also the Pan-African, uh, Pan-Africanist Congress. Yeah. And they were basically peaceful protest groups that were set up to counter uh, the apartheid philosophy. Yeah. And like we said, even though it was peaceful, it didn't matter. Uh, the Sharps, uh, Sharpeville massacre in 1960, a thousand black Africans, uh, left their passbooks at home and said, you know what? We're just going to, Go to the police station and turn ourselves in because we don't have our passbooks. Right. What are you going to do? Process us all? No. They're going to open fire on the crowd. Killed 69 people. Uh, wounded hundreds, yeah. apparently. Yeah. And then they said, you know what? We're going to ban public gatherings then. And they also banned the um, African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist yeah. Congress. Like, you're all illegitimate now. And Nelson Mandela, you're going to jail. But not yet. Not yet. They drove the Pan-Africanist Congress and the African National Congress. Well, 1963, he went to jail. Right, but in 1960, they drove him underground. Oh, well, yeah. And as a result, these groups went from being peaceful to becoming, actually, they formed paramilitary wings. And Mandela um, led the African National Congress's guerrilla wing. Yeah. And he actually later on said... Yeah, we were we were guerrillas and possibly terrorists, and like there were human rights violations by my group, and I regret that. Yeah, but they were good terrorists. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but so he yeah. was jailed for for uh, well, sentenced to a life in prison and remained in prison for thirty years. And most people, unless you're super young, remember Nelson Mandela, free Nelson Mandela, yeah, being a rallying cry. Yeah, up until like the freaking eighties, which is ridiculous that this was still going on then. Yeah, but um, that's the way it went there. Um. 1976, another protest, peaceful, uh, Soweto. Um, this time it was students, and it was because they were trying to make uh, Afrikaans the primary language in black upper schools, even though not many of them even spoke it. Right. So what good is that? So, so they went to protest this, and again- peaceful protest. Open fire. Two children were killed this time, and it started a bunch of riots, and in the end, 3,000 people up to- 3,000, says between 575 and 3,000, 
Probably depends on who you're asking. Right. Uh, were killed by the police. Yeah. Um, and again, just following the same script that they did with Sharpeville in 1960, the government said, all right, all, any dissent groups are completely banned. You yeah. Know, outright. Um, and that included the South African Students Organization led by a guy named Steve Biko. Yeah. And Steve Biko had, uh, he was a medical student. He was like 30, I think, when he died. Um, he had founded what was called the Black Consciousness Movement. It was basically like, uh, it was teaching African self-worth. Countering yeah. everything that was taught through the Bantu Education Act and everything you learned in school, um, African self-reliance, economic self-reliance, um, and it had spread outside of Africa. He was a pretty big figure, and he was pulled over with a buddy and a bunch of um, anti-apartheid uh, pamphlets, and the police arrested him. They beat him. They left him with a head wound, and he died of his injuries. Um, and when Steve Biko died, that was that changed everything. Yeah, he was uh, detained under the Terrorism Act uh, 83 of 1967, which basically said, if we suspect you of being a terrorist, we can detain you for up to 60 days, mm-hmm. and then we can renew that 60 days, by the way, indefinitely, without telling anyone, without releasing who's there. And it was basically a way to make di- people disappear. Usually, right. if you were detained under this act, you were never heard from again. Yeah, And Biko eventually found himself in a coma. And uh, because of torture, and then eventually they said after about three weeks, you know, we should probably take this guy to a, a prison with a hospital at least. Mm. So they threw his naked body in the back of a truck to take him to a hospital, and he died. Uh, they said it was a hunger strike. It was actually brain hemorrhage from being beaten upside the head. Yeah. And years later, Denzel Washington would play him in Cry Freedom. Nice. And Peter Gabriel wrote the awesome song, Biko. Yeah. And um, Tribe Called Quest has um, Steve Biko's song. Yeah. Stir it up. Yeah. Um, so the Soweto uprising the and the, the police killings of those two children uh, was followed right on the heels by Steve Biko's death. Which was a big deal, like, around the world. Yeah, it was. The, um, the U.S. ambassador to South Africa, I think, in probably what was a huge protest move, went to Steve Biko's funeral. Um, there was a, yeah, Steve Biko dying was, that was a big deal. Yeah. And we should shout out to Helen Suzman. Shout out. <laughs> she was the one voice of reason, uh, in South Africa's all white parliament. She was the one voice, anti-apartheid voice. And she was like, if you look her up today, man, she's an amazing, amazing woman. She just yeah. died a few years ago. Oh yeah. But, um, she was at the funeral and, um, yeah, this is when it became like a thing around the world. Like, Hey, you know what? We're going to start pulling our uh, embassies out of South Africa. Yeah. We're going to start boycotting uh, sanctions against South Africa, uh, economic sanctions. And this was happening with the United States, Great Britain, other Western nations. And basically, South Africa became, you know, the evil empire, like right. exposed. It was pretty cool. By the by, finally, in 1986, the U.S. Congress got its act together enough to pass the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act. Yeah. And it banned any new investment, um, any new business setting up and dealing in trade with South Africa. Um, South Africa was banned from doing business here in the U.S., so South African airlines couldn't land at any U.S. airport. Yeah. Um, Hit them where it hurt, basically. Yeah, big time. The rand fell in value. It was a big deal. Um, and Reagan vetoed it, actually. And his veto was overridden by Congress. Awesome. That's how, that's how much, that's how badly they wanted to do it. Um, and it was a very important thing. This was right in the middle of, um, 
This is like when we were kids. You remember that, like oh, that, yeah. that Keith Haring um, poster of yeah. Free South Africa. Uh-huh. Um, there was like the uh, Ink and Play Sun City. Yep, the song um, Free Nelson Mandela. I remember that one. Yeah, it was a there was a it was a big deal. Yeah, uh, the whole world was opposed to South Africa. Um, there was this great thing called divestment that actually may have really been the thing that killed apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, what was the deal there? So divestment is, and it's going on now, but um, with apartheid, it was basically where people, like, it started with colleges. Colleges have huge endowments yeah. that are heavily invested in all sorts of stuff. And they said, you know what? We're not going to invest in anything that has anything to do with South Africa anymore. Coca-Cola, if you're doing business in South Africa, we're not going to invest in you anymore. Right. Whoever. Um, and so they, they divested rather than invested. Ah, okay. They got all their money out. And a lot of university, a lot of universities did this. And they did it at the prompting of some of their students. Like in Harvard, they, um, the students erected a shantytown to show what the people who lived in the shanty oh, yeah. towns of South Africa were living like. Wow. And, and got all these endowments to, to start divesting. And I think, uh, Cal, had the biggest one. They divested $3 billion from the South African economy. Holy cow. And, um, they think that that was the, the thing that really like, like opened the bleeding. Go bears. Yeah. So, um, this divestment combined with this international political pressure all over the world and South Africa still says, uh, go to hell. We're not getting rid of apartheid <laughs> for years still. Yeah. And through, then through finally, the eighties. Yeah. And then finally it was what, 1993? Uh, well, 1989 is when the big turning point came. That's when F.W. de Klerk became president That's of right. apartheid South Africa. And between 89 and 93 is when he basically repealed everything on the books and said, this is going in a different direction now. Yeah. Uh, let's release Nelson Mandela. And in fact, when we have our first democratic election in 1994, uh, Nelson Mandela wins. So what a great <laughs> ending to that story. It really is. And, uh, Despite being in prison for 30 years, uh, on May 10th, 1994, when Mandela was giving his, uh, his speech, he closed by speaking in Afrikaans. This is his inauguration speech. Yeah, which is like, the fact that he even spoke in that tongue to me says a lot about the man. And he said, what, what is past is past. And here's a Nobel Peace Prize, Mr. Mandela right. and, and Mr. de Klerk. Yeah. Like you both get it in 1993. And I like the article pointed out it was a shockingly peaceful transition, uh, and I'm sure there are still many, many more years that are needed for the healing. Uh, you don't get over something like that overnight if it's been hundreds of years, but um, I think things are definitely headed in the right direction now. Yeah. Well, one of the things that they did was they set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was like basically a tribunal that heard... Um, stories of human rights violations that gave victims a voice to say it in public, like this happened to me. Right. Um, in some instances, people who perpetrated these could be prosecuted. Wow. They could also be forgiven publicly by this court, this yeah. tribunal. Um, it was a really good move to like kind of help this national healing because yeah, all of a sudden apartheid's gone o- over a four year period. Yeah. But I mean, there was a lot of people who were kind of into that. And they sure. did a lot of stuff, and they're not protected by the government anymore. And, like, a lot of bad things happen to a lot of people who are still alive. Like, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, and I think that was a really good move to to move not just the government but also the society to sure. a post-apartheid um, life. Yeah. I'd like to hear from people in South Africa about the state of things today. Yeah. And watch Searching for Sugar Man, people. Yes. It's really, like, 
through this great story of music encapsulates this whole time period really, really well. Right. And then uh, I guess ever since the aliens landed over Johannesburg, that's kind of taken up a lot of their <laughs> right. a lot of their attention. Oh yeah, what was that? Uh, District Nine. Yeah, which was really based on apartheid, pretty much, wasn't it? What? <laughs> was that the inspiration for that movie? <laughs> <laughs> that was a good movie. Yeah. So watch that. Watch District Nine, Searching for Sugar Man, and watch Cry Freedom. Yeah. And, and uh, go listen to Tribe Called Quest, Peter Gabriel, and I haven't, Steven. <laughs> I have not listened or seen the uh, the rugby movie yet. Oh, where uh, Morgan Freeman plays Mandela with Invictus uh, or Mitt Inv- Damon. Yeah, <laughs> what is it? Invictus, I think. Yeah, that's right. yeah. I need, I need to see that one. Uh, okay, that's it for apartheid, huh? Thank yeah. goodness. Uh, do you want to do uh, a word from our sponsor? Yeah, we got listener mail coming up, but uh, word from our sponsor first. So now it's time for listener mail, right? That's right. Josh, I'm going to call this uh, Surf's Up. (laughs) I just listened to How Surfing Works as someone who surfs 300 days a year all over the world and teaches surfing for a living. Just wanted to say that you guys did an excellent job. Uh, For two guys who don't surf and have very limited experience with it, your definitions and descriptions were pretty much spot on. And I would have to agree with you, Chuck, that it is very uh, difficult to learn. It has one of the slowest, most miserable learning curves of any sport. I always tell people that if you don't enjoy sucking at it, then you won't enjoy surfing. So, quickly, did you surf on your vacation? Uh, yeah, I did. And I, how did you do? I got I've been up, waiting to ask. I got up. Yumi was watching from the shore, and she agrees um, that I did get up at least once. Okay. Possibly, she says possibly twice, but I, um, <laughs> I, I, I only stand by one. And by, by get up, I mean... I was virtually crouching, sure, and then fell off after like five seconds. And how many days did you try it? Uh, just one, and I didn't okay. even I didn't even take a lesson. Okay, you just went out there. Do you know how? Well, our podcast, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you that's how pop-up? I figured out how to do it. I did kind of, but um, I I remember we were talking about how it's very easy to like get on your hands and knees and then get up. Yeah, but you don't want to learn that technique. Is that the technique? That's that's trying? what I learned. Yeah, sure you got to crawl before you can walk. Exactly. Also, I should clear up that in general, learning to surf on a longboard is usually preferred as they catch waves easier and are easier to stand up on than a shortboard. Uh, but being that catching a wave is the hardest part for beginners, you're usually better off learning that way. Yeah. Did you have a shortboard? Uh, yeah, it was shortish. Shortish? Yeah. It definitely wasn't a longboard. Uh, they turn easier, uh, but turning is pointless if you can't catch the wave in the fir- uh, first place. Right. So, yeah, anyway. there was no turning going on. <laughs> yeah. It was surf riding. Surf riding. Anyway, I just want to say good job, guys. Uh, I'll be teaching surfing all summer in Southampton, New York. If you're up in New York this summer, hit me up. I'll take you out for a surf. And that is Miles from Santa Cruz. P.S. Big Wednesday is the best movie ever. Of course you think that. Because that's what surfers do. Um, that's nice. Miles? Yeah, 300 days a year. Can you believe that? He's, it sounds like Miles has got a pretty decent life if he's living in Santa Cruz and then teaching in New York in the summers. Yeah, that's cool. Um, thanks for writing in, Miles. If you uh, are an expert or you do something that we've talked about 300 days a year, we want to hear from you because that pretty much makes you an expert. Um, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us uh, at Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us a uh, an email. Right? Isn't Please. that what those are called? Yeah. To stuffpodcast at discovery.com and check out our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com. Folks, 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 